Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado on the Anschutz Medical Campus. Today we're around the scope to talk about the many pathways to U.S. residencies for international medical graduates. And I'm lucky today to be joined by a number of pathologist friends who are international medical graduates, so I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Sanam Logavi. I'm a hematopathologist and a molecular pathologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and really glad to be here today. Kamran Mirza, I'm a hematopathologist and the Vice Chair of Education at Loyola Pathology. It's in the suburbs of Chicago. Nice to see everyone. Hi, I'm Archana Shinoi. I'm a pediatric pathologist with interest in pediatric solid tumor and GI liver pathology. Uh, I'm at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, everyone. My name is Sonia Chen. I am a pediatric pathologist with um, interest in sarcoma pathology as well. Archana is my buddy because we are both at Nationwide Children's Hospital. It's good to see you guys. Hi, Dr. Mirza. Oh, wow. Dr. Mirza. Huh? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> It's the tie that makes it great, Dr. I know, Marissa. like, exactly. You look too professional to, no, be, are, to be called by your first We name. are interviewing residency candidates, and I am wearing fuzzy, uh, uh, fuzzy slippers, and I'm just joking. Like, you know, but this is all they need to see, so it is what it is. Uh, yeah. Well, that's why my is it all on Zoom? <laughs> oh. What were you saying, Archana? Your office is what? cleaned up because of the interviews you are an honorable Good person strategy. Is blurred, as you can see <laughs> come on is it all on zoom or do yeah. they have the option to come or not no. all on zoom i think that that was the recommendation that the association of pathology chairs did and i think that then it becomes dicey whether you know some are allowed in and then you know maybe we get to know them more so it becomes like difficult to gauge yeah. them on the same level so then even if they're in chicago even actually some elective students who will be sitting in the residence room, they're still being interviewed on Zoom. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I actually saw this, this thing um, someone had posted on Twitter. It said the, the worst of both worlds where you have to Zoom from your office. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like actually the worst of both worlds. Exactly. <laughs> but I guess it's good. You know, it gives people like us an opportunity to see each other and chat. Exactly. I think the classes uh, after, after I guess, this class won't pay for CS, won't pay for residency interviews, uh, travel. So I think it, it's uh, economically very fair because it doesn't yeah. really depend on how much you can travel and, you know, in, in those ways. Um, I wish we could get our money back, Archana. I know, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, actually, that's a very good segue to the, to the topic of the day. I feel like, you know, it, it was horrible to have to... To, like pay for all those you know trips and interviews yeah. and as an img you had to like you wanted to go on every single interview you got because you know you want to maximize there was no exactly of- there's no concept of rejecting interviews uh, yeah. you know what I mean? and from pakistan one dollar is a hundred like right now it's 170 rupees okay yep. that's insanity okay mm-hmm. and so yeah the number of like random greyhound uh, trips that I took between New York and Chicago <laughs> with very shady people, I have to say. Uh, yeah. you know, it was an experience and I grew up and I, and I appreciate the experience, but oh boy, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't wish that on anyone else. Yeah, so it, it's good. You know, it's an improvement overall. I know that Christina and I get a lot of questions about this topic. We're going to talk today about international medical graduates and the different paths to coming to residency and jobs in, in the United States. Tell me a little bit about how you got into pathology and what, specifically what was different you think about your path into your current career as an international medical graduate. I feel like kind of two different, different topics, you know, like the interest in pathology and then, you know, navigating the, the IMG world. Uh, but I'll tell you, so, you know, I, like the first time I actually considered moving to the U.S. So my brother had moved to the U.S., my younger brother, who's four years younger than me, uh, moved to the U.S. right after he graduated from high school. He said, you know, he essentially told my parents he wasn't going to waste another minute in Iran and he wanted to go to the U.S. and go to college there. And this had never occurred to me before at all. You know, I went to medical school. I didn't even consider that I could come here and go to college and medical school or anything like that. So when he left, I was like, hmm, maybe I should consider moving too. You know, maybe I should go do residency there. 
And then I started looking into, you know, ways to come here and do residency here. And, you know, the, like everybody in Iran was into the whole U.S. Emily thing. People knew chaplain classes. Uh, and we were like, you know, pro, pro, like, um, study. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you say, but like nerds, right? I, like, I was ready to study and like take the exams. But other than that, I didn't know anything about like the IMG experience here, how to get into the door, nothing. So I came here um, and I started studying for the US MLEs, which in retrospect, I think was a mistake. And if I were to give someone some advice, I would definitely say start studying for the US MLEs while you're still in school in your own country and take the exams while you're there, not after you graduate, because it gives you, you know, it kind of gives you a jump start. Otherwise, you have a gap in your CV that you later have to kind of explain. Okay, so then I came here. Um, and I, I, my interest in pathology was because my best friend's dad was a pathologist in Iran. So that's why I wanted to become a pathologist. I'd seen his practice, which in retrospect was completely different from the way we do pathology here. He had like a one man shop, you know, he would like, gross his own mastectomies or you know it was just like a small pathology lab that seemed attractive to me I was like you know I like this I like the lifestyle I you know I like the connection to science it was it was good so then when I came here um and I started you know actually looking into the process and getting serious about it I was like wow this is really hard uh you know like I I remember one day I sat down and I sent 300 emails I was in Northern California at the time, sent like 300 emails to different pathologists all over the country, including people at Stanford, uh, at UCSF, which were, you know, my local uh, academic centers. And I got three replies back from the 300 emails that I, and the email said, you know, I basically want to come volunteer in your lab. These were all people that had labs. I got three emails back. Um, and, you know, one of the people that emailed me back was Eugene Butcher, you know, People at Stanford probably know him. He's a very, very famous pathologist, immunologist at Stanford that has a basic science uh, research lab. And he said, you know, why don't you come to my lab tomorrow and, you know, let's chat. Let's see what your plans are and what you want to do. So I went there and then I started volunteering as a research assistant for one of his postdocs. Uh, that kind of got me into the door. And then, uh, you know, through that connection, I got to go to sign out sessions at Stanford and sit with people and, you know, they wrote me letters. People at Stanford wrote me letters. And by that time, I'd taken the US MLE. So from there on, it was easy. But getting into, you know, a lab uh, was hard. Kamra, tell us a little bit about your experience. You know, it's, uh, it's so nice to hear Sanam's story. And there's so many similarities, I would say, to my story. So, um, so I graduated from Pakistan uh, in a city called Karachi. The university is called Aga Khan University. I'm very proud of it. Go AKU. Um, uh, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to become a pathologist, to be honest with you. I, and, I, and I've spoken about this openly with our pathology student interest group. Uh, and, and I kind of use it as fodder for you know, them to know that it's okay to be unsure, right? You want to make an informed decision. Um, and actually coming out of medical school, I wanted to do something different. That was what I've always wanted to be the person who doesn't follow the rat race. And to me, uh, becoming a cardiologist or an ophthalmologist or an orthopedic surgeon just didn't jive it, irrespective of the academic matter. Like, of course, they're all interesting fields, but I just did not want to do what the bulk of like, let's say, brown boys were doing. OK, so let's put it that <laughs> way. And I wanted to do something different. Um, and pathology was very different. One of my closest friends, uh, one of our closest friends decided to become a pathologist. His dad was a pathologist. Uh, and that kind of sparked my interest towards it. But I wasn't sure whether this is what I want to do or not. And actually, and this is a big no-no uh, in general, but I applied for two things. I applied for PEDS and PATH together. Uh, and like Sanam, um, I took a, you know, almost like half a year or seven months after I, our graduation was in December. And so I had till September to take the USMLE step exams and then, you know, apply for ERAS. And so it was a little bit of separate time. And I agree, just like Sanam is saying in Pakistan, uh, you know, we're huge, like amazing nerds, uh, very smart individuals. Uh, you know, we had groups like student groups who knew like, you know, what the steps were. Uh, you know, and how to get through them. Uh, and then I applied and uh, spent a ton of my dad's money uh, flying over here and, uh, you know, taking Greyhound trips from one city to the other, not saying no to any interview, uh, getting stuck on Greyhound buses with, uh, you know, snowstorms, uh, you know, Christmas Eve, etc. But it was 
an amazing experience uh, asking uh, favors from relatives and loved ones who were here in the United States to like, you know, crash on couches, etc. Uh, so I think it was a life-building experience for me. This was the first time I had ever, like, really ever spent any time in the United States. So that by itself was, uh, you know, a completely different experience. And uh, after all of this, I went back home after interviewing and matched. And then uh, on July seventh, lost my program uh, residency program because of the fact that they rescinded my offer. It was a visa issue. Long story, uh, which I'm sure we've discussed in some other podcast, but. I lost the residency spot, okay? And so now not only I had, had I spent all the money, uh, done all of this traveling, done everything right, technically as far as I was concerned, uh, and basically I had nothing to show for it. So that was when my trajectory changed. And like Sanam, I think I want to take a snapshot of the thousands of emails I wrote, like a desperate individual who had basically, like, you know, to me, <laughs> that was the end. Like, you know, I mean, we had worked towards this one particular thing, achieved it, and then lost it. It was, it was horrible. You know, thank, thankfully, Sarah, my wife, was there to support me. I swear, I can't think about how that time would have been without her. In any case, so then I wrote thousands of emails. I think I got four responses. So very similar to Sanam's story. And I was abroad. I wasn't even writing to like my area. I was basically sitting in Lahore, Pakistan saying, can I please come and do research? And Asrar Malik, uh, who was a distinguished professor of pharmacology uh, and the director of lung and vascular biology at the University of Illinois at Chicago, said, I will interview you on the phone and you can come start work with us. I'll, I'll sponsor a visa. But, you know, remember that doing a good research probably takes more than a year. So I came in, you know, with my, you know, my family unit, my wife was with me and we had our firstborn who's turning 17 tomorrow, uh, you know, <laughs> al you know, already by that time. And so we moved here. My wife went into the ERAS uh, NRMP cycle and I started research. And then I spent four years doing a PhD and then reapplied only to pathology happily and then matched. So my uh, route was circuitous in that uh, it was supposed to be pretty direct. Um, it seemed horrible at the time that I lost what I wanted to do. But in retrospect, I think it was for the best because, you know, things that happened set the stage for everything else that was going to happen in my life. And so I'm grateful for it. But boy, did it suck. So that's my story. Amazing. What a, what a journey. What dedication, right? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Impressive. Archana, tell us a little bit about your experience. Um, my experience is uh, very similar, um, but it differs in a little bit that um, I started with an away rotation, which is um, essentially how uh, I, I was trying to decide whether I wanted to do pathology in the US or pathology back home in India. So uh, pathology for me has always been a passion. Uh, I've always wanted to do pathology uh, right from medical school where I uh, fell in love with microscopy. And so uh, I always knew I wanted to do pathology. For me, the choice was uh, whether I should pursue pathology in the United States or whether I should pursue pathology in India. And I was lucky enough to uh, find a relative uh, who was able to sponsor an away rotation at their institution in pathology. Um, so uh, this is one of the ways that um, international medical graduates get connected to, uh, where somebody that you know will sponsor an away at their institution in, in, a in a department. And for me, it was always pathology. I didn't go to internal medicine. I didn't do any other ways um, since it was always pathology. Uh, and my eyes were opened to how pathology was practiced in the U.S., uh, which is, which is uh, what brought me here. So essentially, uh, the panel of immunohistochemical stains, the molecular testing that was relatively new at that time. So I was able to practice at a level where I could really get to know what the tumors are besides at a descriptive level. So it was a very academic and conscious decision uh, for me where I compared how I was would be able to practice into uh, in the two countries and then decided, oh, this is really what I love about the field and I want to be here. So after that, I guess um, I was one of the ones who pursued um, the exams alongside internship. A lot of the foreign medical graduates uh, have to do uh, one year internship after medical school. So essentially, I pursued my exams during internship, uh, which is when my, I did my away rotations too. So uh, essentially, uh, I, uh, I, I, 
was directly able to pursue the match, uh, which again takes a year after graduation for international medical graduates, but that was uh, more or less my path. Uh, the path that uh, Kamran and Sanam have um, uh, talked about, the research path is something I did consider, but again, as uh, uh, Dr. Mirza said, research takes uh, quite a bit to um, pursue meaningful research. So essentially, that would have been a backup plan for me. Essentially, I leaped uh, with all faith into the match and said, okay, let's see what happens. Um, and since I was very clear about my goals. I wanted to pursue pathology. So uh, that, that's how I got into the field. That's great. Sonia, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Okay. So my, um, my mother and father, I'll start with them, uh, are both in the medical profession. My mom is actually a nurse practitioner and my dad is a family medicine doc. So I did not in any way, shape, or form actually wanted to go to medical school. <laughs> um, and I was a budding artist. At the age of 15, I had my first, um, my first real exhibit. I sold a lot of stuff to banks. And there I was thinking, all right, I'm going to make some cash. This is me doing big time. No pathology in sight. And certainly no med school in sight. But after my first exhibit, I made maybe a couple thousand dollars. And my father was like, you see? Now, you could make this couple of thousand dollars here today after putting in so much time and energy, but I'm sure you'd make more if you were a doctor or a lawyer or some professional. So um, then my ideas about what I was going to do with the rest of my life will sort of change. And um, I decided that looking at the body as a work of art was easier than trying to hustle and be an artist. Um, and so I ended up in medical school. Unfortunately, in the Caribbean, uh, at the time that I was um, training, there weren't a lot of people racing to leave for the United States. I think my class actually has the largest number of people who left for the United States um, and we were like 200 strong. Uh, before that, very few people were actually going. And it was because it's just very hard. One, hard to get in. Um, and two, because monetarily, it's also very challenging. Uh, and you could find some certain specialties in Trinidad, uh, which is where I'm from, or in Jamaica, um, and make do if that's what you so wanted to do. And you could stay in the region. So I thought about um, perhaps practicing in Jamaica or in Trinidad. But my heart was not happy just thinking about that. Uh, I think you, it resonates with all of you probably that, uh, you know, you see that the, the possibilities for staying home are there, but you see more when you think about coming to the United States, at least at that time when you were put in that position. And I think that's exactly what it was for me. Um, and so while I was in medical school, I was the girl who liked everything. I could not, I went to orthopedics rotation. I was like, I love this. I went to surgery. I love this. ENT, I love this. And then the question came, what do I, what can I see myself doing? It certainly was not family practice like my father. And I, the only place I could really see myself enjoying everything about medicine is pathology. So I tried my darndest to find a way to do internship while studying for USMLEs. And fortunately, the house officer who was in pathology broke his ankle the first week that I was scheduled to be in the NICU. <laughs> so I did one week of NICU stuck as many babies as I could during that time because that's what, what NICU was about um, and then moved on to um, working in pathology where my colleague had broken his foot. Needless to say, I had um, four triple A's that day. <laughs> I can't forget it because it was too many crazy things that happened on the same day. Um, but that's how I ended up in pathology and loved it from the very moment that I started. So then I knew um, I had thoughts about maybe doing OBGYN, something like that, but it just nothing could compare once I actually started in the practice. And, you know, being a, a sort of, I completed internship and then I was a house officer, house staff in pathology for about two years. Um, and during this time, I was writing my exams and saving and scrounging because I knew I was going to come to the U.S. and I had nobody to help me. BT dubs, I went to medical school on the basis of my um, of scholarship achievement. So I really didn't have a lot of money coming from my parents, even though they were in the medical profession. My parents were separated and my father was not really contributing to the household. So I was bringing home whatever money I had from my medical school scholarship 
Um, I would buy my own clothes. I would pay for groceries, these things. So it's not, there was not limitless money, honestly. Um, so then coming back to um, writing US Emily's, et cetera, I did all of that during the time while I was an intern and house officer um, and literally spent whatever money that I earned on travel. Um, fortunately, I had, you know, uncles here and there who I could stay by. But other than that, I was on my own doing everything else. Um, and like uh, Sanam and Cameron, I sent out emails. During that pathology time, I sent emails to everyone and got three responses that were in the positive zero for anybody i was like oh my god nobody even looked at their email and i thought in the united states people looked at their emails <laughs> so then after i got three then i found out there was someone in rhode island who was uh, a countryman and that's how i got into um to do an observership uh in rhode island at rhode island hospital at brown um and once I did my observership, I basically told people, listen, I'm here. I've been, worked really hard just to get to this point, And I will not let you down. I will be the greatest resident you've ever seen. Um, and this is how I got my letters of recommendation. And that's how my journey began. And that's it. Yeah. And I guess um, to that, one of the issues we now face is we cannot help everybody we want to help. So I guess in retrospect, I understand why all those emails don't get answered because um, there are times we can help and there are institutional policies, especially with COVID and everything else that uh, have since changed or, uh, you know, are very uh, rigid. And it, it is, uh, I guess that's a message too that things keep changing and uh it's it's sometimes really pains to see wonderful applicants not not get help um absolutely so i think you know th that's a very good point i think um maybe a couple of recommendations for for you know students that are uh or imgs that are trying to match in the u.s that i i think i learned the hard way but i think you know are important to know are one, it's a lot easier to get an observership while you're still a medical student, you know, like you were saying, Arshanat. So I think, you know, if, if your goal is to come here and maybe if you're listening to this from, you know, from your own country and you're still in med medical school, get an away rotation while you're still in medical school because most clinical departments, regardless of the specialty you want to apply to, uh, you know, patient care departments, they're not going to be able to sponsor an observership if you've already graduated from medical school. So you cannot just be a volunteer or, you know, an observer in a clinical department, mostly because of HIPAA guidelines, right? And insurance, because they can't, you know, if you, if you come while you're still in, in your own medical school, you get insurance through your medical school. Uh, but once you've graduated, that department can't sponsor you for your insurance. So that's, that's one thing, I think. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, you're right. It's it's really hard. You know, I, I myself probably get, you know, I don't know, uh, at least a handful of these, you know, applications and letters uh, every week from, you know, mostly international medical graduates. And we really can't help because of institutional policies, mostly even, you know, even apart from COVID, uh, uh, you know, regulations and guidelines. Uh, so I would say, you know, reach out to people while you're still a medical student and covered by your medical school um, insurance and, and, you know, those um, policies and guidelines. That's a very valid point. I do remember I had to buy third-party insurance, but it's still possible when you are a medical student yeah. to buy if your institution doesn't sponsor uh, insurance. So um, definitely a very valid point. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing, oh, sorry, I, I forgot, but I wanted to say, if you're already beyond that point and, you, and you've graduated, so I would, you know, I think the easier way to go, um, you know, to basically like get your foot in the door is what Kamran and I did. It's, you know, the research labs, basic science research labs, because they're not patient facing, um, you know, institutions or uh, facilities, they have a little bit, um, you know, wiggle room. So they can bring you in as a volunteer or as an observer. Of course, you're going to have to, you know, mostly work for free probably. Uh, but I think, you know, it's a small price to pay to, to you know, get into the system, learn the system. And in the, in the, you know, in the process, I think you actually learn a lot and it's a win-win situation. Uh, but that's, you know, that's kind of your way to get into the door and prove yourself and, you know, show people that you're hardworking 
usually those research labs have connections to the clinical you know, departments that can later help you get a position. You know, and the re- just like Sanam is saying, the research mentors can obviously write letters of recommendation, make some phone calls for you, right? I mean, ultimately, we are all here because there were people who believed in us and, you know, we worked hard naturally and then, you know, yeah. they, they, you know, they supported us. And, and we all recognize, I mean, the four of us here recognize how privileged we were to be able to afford even this to happen, right? I mean, there will be listeners who can't afford to travel to the United States, right, and spend like a month during their medical school education. And, and, their, and their routes, obviously, alternative routes that, you know, they can consider, like, you know, right now, I think the pandemic has been helpful, quote, unquote, in that sense, right, that, you know, virtual rotations are starting to pop up, etc. I mean, and they may not be exactly the same types of experiences uh, that can help you specifically for pathology. But in many ways, uh, you know, if you are able to, like, kind of link into a virtual rotation, uh, you know, a lot of things are uh, taken away, like a lot of issues, for example, insurance isn't an issue anymore. Um, HIPAA is usually not an issue, because, you know, when you're doing didactics, they're not really talking about patient information. Uh, WebEx is HIPAA compliant, right? And so there are ways that, you know, you can work around that. But I think that, you know, we come from a point of, uh, you know, I mean, it's difficult to kind of look back and not be, to be honest with you, kind of bowled away by like what we had to actually do. Like I, I get nervous thinking about if I had to do it again, like would I have the energy to do it? But I think when you're in that moment, you have like this enthusiasm to kind of just proceed. Uh, but looking back, man, it, it seems so difficult. And so, uh, you know, like I would probably like, you know, my colleagues here would agree with me. I think be proud of all of the things that you've achieved, uh, you know, and similar to what all of everyone is saying, like I get those same emails. I can see myself writing that email, you know, and since my roles here are very much related to medical student education and residency program, I get like at least a dozen of them a day. And the reason why I respond to them, uh, even even if it's obviously negative saying that, sorry, you know, we're full, is because I remember 24-year-old myself uh, writing on the other side, you know, and... um, yeah. And so that that allows me to reply to many of them. I, I can't do all of them. It's just humanly impossible. Uh, but if you do get a letter from me stating, thank you so much for your interest. We're very sorry. It's because I can see myself in you and I respect your time and the effort that you put in. And I'm very sorry that I couldn't help. Right. Because, you know, it, it is what it is. It seems like it's, it, it takes such incredible tenacity and some luck to get through this pathway. I think luck is huge, honestly, Mike. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, there are many, many things that I think I did right. I'm sure there were things that I did wrong. But honestly, I think that without support of people and actually strokes of luck, to be honest with you, um, you know, so luck does have a huge, I mean, I know we can't control luck, but it does have a huge uh, role to play. Yeah, and I guess it. we've talked about how to get in, but it doesn't really end there. Um, essentially, Um, getting in as one part. Um, As international medical graduates, uh, one of the things you always worry about is not only taking the step, but taking it well enough to uh, be offered an interview. Um, I think uh, once uh, once you have attempts on a certain step or something like that, you're always concerned that if you fail a step, it's going to look bad and you're not going to get an interview anymore. And so essentially, it's not not just getting in. I think at every point, uh, the stress continues. (laughs) Um, And I think you always apply to more programs than you probably need to in residency. uh, And then, you know, you just hope that uh, you will get selected by an institution. And even between residency and fellowship, I mean, I had to renew my visa the whole time because my, I was a J1. So every single year I was renewing a visa that I paid for out of my resident payment, resident paycheck um, while paying rent and all the other things. Um, and every single year, if I, had to, um, if I had to travel or go anywhere, I, mean, I had to make sure I had this DS-2019 on me at all times. Because if someone stopped me and asked me what I was doing out here, then I would have to provide, inf- you know, provide that information. To me, that part was also a little um, scary, <laughs> uh, especially as things changed with um, administrative policies. I'm going to say that very nicely. Um, and um, and COVID, you know, lots of th- you know, lots of things. I, I was so terrified. I'm so happy now. And I finally got to the point where I have a green card and I don't have to think about this. But 
I've, I feel like even um, there was one point in time where I had to petition the governor of Massachusetts. And then when I was coming back as an attending, I had to petition the governor of Rhode Island to get a job, to speed along the process of, you know, my visa and all the paperwork that was required. That part, I think, is um, also one of the most nerve wracking because I'm also trying at the same time to be a darn good fellow and to do what I have to do in the clinical realm. Uh, while at the same time balancing in the back of my head, you know, at the end of this year, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, even though I want to be here. So that to me was also um, a lesson learned. Talk a little bit about the different types of visas. What visas do you need to be here as an observer or a rotator as a medical student? What what different visa requirements are there when you're actually employed as a resident and, and later as a fellow and attending? I can take a stab at that. So I think that I probably wasn't uh, 100% clear on a lot of visas because, you know, naturally you're, it's very situation dependent. I was married to, um, you know, Sarah, my wife, who was a green card holder at the time. And so um, my, my situation was very specific. She couldn't sponsor me for a green card on a green card. It was kind of tricky. We were both living in Pakistan. But broadly speaking, for anyone who has not started the process, you have to consider two main categories of visas. One is an immigrant category of visa, where the intention of the visa itself is to eventually become an immigrant to the United States. And the other category of main category of visas are the, is the non-immigrant category of visas. So the non-immigrant category of visas is the J visa. It is an exchange visitor program. And by, you know, by definition, an exchange visitor program means that the United States has an agreement with your country. So let's take my example with Pakistan, uh, that, you know, they are going to, are willing to take in people. It's supposed to be an exchange, right? That, you know, Americans go to Pakistan and Pakistans come to Pakistanis come to America. Uh, and that, you know, you're supposed to spend the amount of time on the J visa learning what you need to learn. The United States will train you, teach you, right? So residency qualifies and fellowship qualifies. But the whole idea is that you are coming in as a non-immigrant with a non-immigrant intent to go back to your country to serve your country. And that is why there is a two-year residency requirement after the J visa finishes where you go back home to your country and you serve your country and you cannot, you shouldn't be able to come back to the United States in that time period. So people get around that if they don't want to go back by several ways. One is to apply for a J-1 waiver, in which case you can go to an underserved area within the United States uh, and spend two years there and then transfer to an immigrant status. Or, three years. Uh, three, uh, three years, sorry. Three so years, I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, so it's three years. I, I didn't even know. So absolutely. It's two so for home country. I'm pretty sure about it's that. It's two for home country, but then the waiver here probably is three years. It, yes, it's definitely. So I, I have done this process. So yes, it's, two for um, home country and three for if you stay in the United States in that underdeveloped area. Right. You must so, you not know, leave. You cannot break your contract. You can't go anywhere. You have to stay. Right. Right. And then, you know, and I'm, I'm sure Sonia knows better than I that, you know, underserved regions typically don't have a lot of pathology, right? Because pathology can be tr uh, transited to the bigger cities. And so that by itself is an issue uh, for pathology trainees. Um, and, and then otherwise, you, there are ways that you can apply, you know, for a, a waiver condition, like a hardship waiver, etc. So there are multiple other things that you can do. And the other main category is the immigrant visa, in which case you come in and your institution sponsors you for that immigrant intent, intention visa. Typically, it's an H-1B. Uh, and then that can transfer over into an employment document and then eventually a green card. Right. So so I guess the bottom line for all of this is that if you, are, you know, remember Remember that there are two categ different categories of visas. Remember that all of them have pros and cons. You have to see what your situation is as an applicant. And then also kind of apply with that intentionality that, you know, what program will offer what type of visa, for example. So knowing that is very important, I think. Yeah, I just want to say to add to that, um, at the time, and this is now giving you some of my history, at the time when I chose to do a J visa, I was engaged. And I was with someone who was, had been um, an intern also at the same time as me. And both of us were thinking, oh, we go to the United States, get our training and then return home. Um, however, life happens and things change. Uh, and then we broke up in the middle of my second year of residency. And so my plans, my plans were when at that point in time, I was like, listen, I really love what I'm doing here. And I think I could make more of an impact if I stayed here and help people back home rather than go home and work in my mind in a place that has a lot of tunnel vision. 
Um, and so for that reason, uh, I decided that after my J, I would look for a waiver. But let me tell you, it was not easy looking for a waiver because waivers are few and far between. Each, um, uh, each uh, state only has 50 waivers. So that means Rhode Island has 50 waivers and New York has 50 waivers. So you can imagine, and these waivers are not just for pathology only. They're for all specialties. And they are also, oh, it might be 30 actually, Arjuna, you might be right. It may be 30 um, waivers, but whatever the number is, it's a cap. Every state has the same number. It doesn't change depending on the size of the population, et cetera. Um, and once the, um, the waivers are fulfilled, then it goes to a sec another year. So um, what happens, you apply for your waiver and then you hope that you get it that year. If you don't get it that year, you could be, end up you know, not having a waiver for another year or so. Um, certain places like New York and Pennsylvania, obviously, fill up quickly because they also ask for primary care specialists. So people who are family practice and internal medicine, they get their waivers much, much faster than folks who are special specialists who are pathologists are considered specialists. Um, and so uh, you will find very few people who are radiologists and, and pathologists actually getting waivers, um, especially in areas that have a higher concentration of you know, large institutions. So I was fortunate in that Rhode Island is small enough that they didn't get to fill their waivers. And I was able to, because I have one thing that is good for you if you are a J1 and you want to waiver is that if you have proven that you've worked in an underserved area before, which I had by being a resident there, this um, is a point for you, basically. Uh, and it adds as a, it becomes like a bonus um, feature of this person that they want to sponsor. And so you're much more likely to get the waiver um, if you are, if you've, ha if you have worked in an area of underserved um, communities. So yeah, that's my two cents. <laughs> so when you do get a J1, when you get the waiver, what do you transition to after the J1? After the J1 waiver, then you transition to an H H1B. And the H1B, again, much like the waiver, so much like the J1, so the J1 can last up to six or seven years um, of training. So, you know, if you do APCP, that's four of your years of training. And then potentially, if you did two or three other fellowships, you'd complete that um, seven-year span. Following that and getting the waiver means that you get an H1B. An H1B um, lasts six years uh, and allows you to uh, work for that period of time. It's renewed every three years. Um, and if you are like me who worked in an underserved area at the end of the third year, that's when you would be able to start the process to um, get a green card. So can I ask you guys a question? And I, I honestly don't know the answer to this. I, I'd be interested to know what you think. Do you, you know, there, there are programs that sponsor H-1 visas for residency, and then there are programs that absolutely don't sponsor H-1s and only sponsor J-1s, right? So yeah. would you go for the better program that gives a J-1 visa or for maybe a slightly, you know, um, lower profile program that sponsors an H-1 visa? I can answer that from experience. I went yeah. for the lower profile program with H1 visa, but I didn't match there. I was to match in a J1 program and navigate the J1 waiver process. So I yeah. think uh, the J1 waiver process is no joke. Uh, I was lucky enough to um, have an institution that sponsored a J1 waiver at the end of uh, my fellowship. Uh, and I'm really thankful for that, but uh, it, it wasn't easy in the slightest. And I, I think uh, the way I saw it was um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to train well, no matter what size of the program, no matter what quality of the program, I could always advance to a fellowship uh, say my dream fellowship, right? So uh, yeah, if, yeah. if I do well in that program and I do well in the specialty. Um, so, uh, and that's that's the general advice I give out, even though, uh, you know, it's not what I did. I think there is something to be said about uh, not having to navigate the J1 waiver yeah. process. Um, having said that, that comes with a caveat to, as um, Sonia said, H1B is three years and three years. So if you're thinking about an H1 and you're lucky enough to get an H-1B visa, um, you pretty much have to start your green card application 
three years in, maybe at the very latest, and have uh, built a profile to uh, get a green card approved, at least the EB2 category, if not um, the EB1 category, based on your credentials, I think it does uh, the clock is ticking. So after your sixth year of H-1B, you're out. You have to leave the country for a year uh, before you can come back. So I think uh, retrospectively, yeah, thinking about it, maybe it was all for the good uh, that, it, you know, I didn't have to stress about my green card right away, um, but I did have to stress about the waiver. Um, H-1B does come with that, um, that though. Thanks. I, I think that's very helpful. Yeah. I was lucky in that I ended up matching at a place that sponsored an H-1B. And for me, it was important to get an H-1B, not because of specifically the visa, but because my wife was becoming a citizen. So ultimately, for me, the path to staying with her was going to be relevant in the sense that, you know, if I went back home to Pakistan for two years, we had children already, like, you know, we owned a home, like it was kind of very tricky. So while I think if I had not been married, then maybe I would have like given different weightage to an H-1 versus a J-1. Loyola only sponsors J-1. This I have nothing to do with that decision. I wish we offered more uh, different types of visas. That said, we also sponsor and not sponsor, but work really hard to make sure our trainees who are on J1s get the, their waivers. And so far, we've been successful, knock on wood. So it works out. So I think that, you know, I can sleep peacefully at night knowing that my conscience is clean. You know, we don't bring in people and then, you know, all of a sudden their pathway to training finishes. It does happen. But like everyone has been saying, I, you know, I also reiterate that it can be a little bit tricky. And I think the other thing to be mindful of is, you know, when we talk about the, the J-1 waiver and, you know, underserved areas, that term is very broad. You think about underserved areas. Um, it's not necessarily like Timbuktu out in, in the middle of nowhere. Like I know that, you know, MD Anderson sponsors J-1 va waivers uh, for some people. Or, you know, it, it can be at different institutions through different routes. So, uh, you know, explore your options, ask around um, and get a good lawyer. I would love to echo that because, you know, what Dr. Logavi just said, you know, I mean, it may not be exactly the same for pathology, but I know that, you know, if anyone has been to Chicago and you've been to Devon Avenue, where all the South Asian food is, there are J1 waivers <laughs> on Devon Avenue. I'm serious. It's considered an underserved area, right? So that might be for medicine or family medicine, right? It might not be for yeah. pathology, but she's absolutely right. Make sure you have an excellent lawyer behind you, uh, you know, and it's definitely something to work. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you want to do your own taxes, that's fine. But don't do this on your own. Like get a lawyer. I think it's worthwhile. You guys all endorse the idea of getting a good lawyer. Any advice for how to find a reputable lawyer? Is it something you can get help with from an institution? I would just say word of well, I mean, I think, you know, it's good to, you know, I don't know, but I would say, you know, word of mouth find someone that, you know, had a successful journey, got, you know, what they wanted, and then just go with their lawyer. Um, that, that would be my advice. Yeah, also, I guess, um, endorsing social media more. There are groups on uh, popular social media networks that essentially um, have a closed group for J-1 visa waiver or uh, resident physicians, you know, matching for a certain year or even if it is the previous year. There, there's always groups that you can uh, look up and ask to be a member of. Um, and if you have any question, you can ask in that group and see what other people have done. Uh, when I moved to the U.S., um, one of the first friends I made was through one of those groups that had somebody had matched into the same city as I had. So essentially, that is uh, one avenue for finding out the uh, finding out a good uh, lawyer. Um, also, if you're working with an institution, a lot of times institutions do have legal teams that they prefer to work with. Um, so you might not have a choice. I think most of the times uh, I found myself in a situation where the institution will only work with their own legal team. So uh, that's that's happened to me. So essentially, that is possible too. Yeah, also institutions that have a reputation of having done a J-1 waiver before. Um, I've always found it helpful to be upfront about the visa situation during your interview uh, experience. I mean, essentially, they either know how to 
navigate it or are interested in knowing how to navigate it or uh, or not. And if it's not, um, you could try to convince them saying you'll get your own lawyer, but uh, some employers are very firm about not being interested. And uh, I always get this question, whether should I be upfront about my visa situation? And uh, I was always upfront because I didn't want to keep anybody in the dark about it. Um, essentially, uh, I thought I owed it to my employer to know what it was going to take uh, and uh, approach it with honesty rather than try to sell yourself and uh, later uh, surprise them with your visa situation. Um, so that's always been how I've handled it. What did the others do? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's you know, best to be upfront and because, you know, that, that way people can actually help you too. You know, you're not the first person that's going to have this problem. This is like very common. Uh, people deal with this all the time. They know about it. Everyone's aware. Um, I mean, I know we don't, you know, we don't have a residency program. We have fellowship programs, but I mean, that's not even a thing we consider like the visa status, obviously, you know, like they should be able to get a visa to, you know, to right. enter, but it's not like we prefer the person that doesn't have a visa issue to the person that has a visa issue if they're the better applicant, you know? Uh, so, I, I mean, don't, don't even worry about that. You know, and, and, you know, just uh, piggybacking off of that, I mean, honesty is really the best policy, not only because your institution will probably be able to guide you the best. I mean, sure, if you're in the institution, number one institution of choice isn't offering the right visa, then, you know, don't lie to them to kind of, you know, to change because, you know, really, in many ways, there is a burden of responsibility. And, you know, I might get a lot of hate for this, but there's a burden of responsibility that international medical graduates carry. And that is that we do kind of unfortunately get generalized as all IMGs. So if you lie, right, if you lie to a program and you basically tick them off, you, you know, it's not correct or fair, but that actually may impact the next IMGs coming down the road. You know, I mean, I'm just going to be very honest, right? If you burn bridges, if you lie, and, you know, you are not only representing yourself, but in many ways, you're representing your institution, your country, your visa that you're applying Absolutely. for. And is that correct? No, it's not, right? There should be no burden on you to be doing that. But but the reality is that we are. We are representing all of those things, right? And so, you know, do it for yourself, obviously, to be truthful and for your program, but also do it for the generations of people coming after you. There are examples of, in, uh, foreign medical graduates breaking like ceilings, getting into places that did never took foreign medical graduates and opening the floodgates to years upon years of foreign medical graduates being residents there. And there are also- I got cases, goosebumps. Good. <laughs> and there are also cases, I'm sure Dr. Lagavi is one of those people. I mean, there are also cases where, you know, they, they took foreign medical graduates and then people went and messed it up. I wanted to use a different word, messed it up, and then no more foreign medical graduates. So, you know, it's just the reality of the game, right? So be mindful. Yeah, and I think uh, from a residency programs perspective and fellowship programs perspective, everybody sponsors a visa. Um, in my role with the fellowship program, um, everyone knows what how to process a visa and sponsor a visa. Uh, unfortunately, institutions are moving away from H-1Bs, uh, that the legal firms at institutions um, are, are more in favor of J-1 because the paperwork that they have to go through is more streamlined. Um, that is just a trend that is, uh, <laughs> that is across the board. Um, so there's nothing sometimes institutions can do to help um, the process. What uh, foreign medical graduates can do is be prepared to receive an H1, which is uh, usually taking step three, which means you can get licensed. So I, um, I always say uh, advice uh, foreign medical graduates to take step three before um, you, you are a resident. So be, uh, sometime around match, you should be, if you can take your step three, um, that way, if you are offered an H1, you're in a position to go on it. Uh, that can be a rate limiting yes. step sometimes. People do not take their step three in time and lose out on an H-1B. So that's another important piece of advice I'd like to share. The other reason why, um, because I was scrounging, right? I was like putting money together and saying, yes, I'm going to make these $2 more than $2. Um, but to get that visa, um, the J-1 visa was actually much more affordable, I'll say, than the H-1B. Uh, and certainly took less time overall to get approved than the H-1B. So that also made a huge difference in a choice 
because if I waited any longer, I could have had to wait another year before I get matched or before I got my position. So that also made a big difference for me. So, I mean, for people who are looking at it, look at your timelines and make sure that you have it all set. I, I kind of went in there with blinders and didn't realize that there was such a huge um, time difference between getting the J and between getting the H. And hence, I also went for a J along with my significant other. But at the same time, if you know that it's going to take longer, give yourself the time. You know, and to piggyback again off that, what Sonia said, there are institutions that will pay to expeditely process your H-1B, right? So there is a, it costs money, but you can expedite the H-1B, right? It happens kind of fast. And then there might be institutions that are willing to put in that money. Although I also agree with Archana that those institutions are probably going down, like it's becoming harder and harder for institutions to give H-1Bs. Uh, but they, that might be, you know, or you might have the, you know, you might have the ability to pay for that expediting processing yourself. I mean, you know, not, I, I didn't have it, that's for sure. So, you know, think about expedited processing as well. If your institution can pay for it, that would be a huge benefit. And if they can't, then all of these things make a difference. Well, so much good advice there. And I, I actually think the step three advice is really interesting too, because I, I've told applicants coming into pathology that same thing, just because I don't feel like you're going to learn a whole lot in your first year as a pathology resident that's going to help you do any better on step three. <laughs> so just get it out of the way. And step three is, you know, there's so much overlap with step two anyway, right? So, I mean, like, just take it, get it out of the way. And the other thing is, you know, that um, Artana was uh, mentioning, and I think, you know, in my personal experience helped me a lot is get a full state license as soon as you can, right? Because there, there are states like Texas, the state of Texas has a training permit that you can get, which is actually cheaper than the full state license, and then you can get the full state license. Uh, but I think, you know, it's helpful, first of all, for when you apply to jobs, it's really helpful if you have a full unrestricted license when you're applying. And then it can also help you, you know, secure some fellowship positions that you otherwise would have, you know, that would have been difficult to secure. So I would, I would say get your full and unrestricted license as soon as you can. Yeah, the, the challenge I face there too, without being in the US and trying to get a full license to get the H-1B is every state has its own rules about how many years of postgraduate training you have to do before you become license eligible. So there are some states, uh, probably Texas is one, I don't know, but there are some states that allow uh, licensing with shorter duration of training, but some states require the entire two years or the entire three years. And some states even require more training for foreign medical graduates compared to uh, U.S. graduates. So uh, if you're looking at state licenses, also look up uh, multiple states to see where you're eligible, not, uh, not to uh, uh, sort of get disappointed with one state that doesn't take you. I, I think this is just so much great advice. There's a ton of stuff I had no idea of, obviously just not having that experience. So I, I really appreciate you sharing all this advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Of course, it was a pleasure. And good luck to everybody applying for, for a match, especially oh, yeah. those applying to pathology. <laughs> Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Thank you.